Rathbone's Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. Welcome to the Rathbone's Look Forward series. We're speaking to some of the great thinkers, journalists and writers of our time, focusing on the future of our changing world. My guest today is author and educator Alex Beard. His first book, Natural Born Learners, is a user's guide to transforming learning in the 21st century, showing how we can and why we must do better. We're talking about the future of education. Alex, welcome. Hi. You were a secondary school teacher for 10 years in London, in Elephant and Castle. It was a fairly tough area, fairly tough school. Tell me about that. Yeah, so... My teaching experience began with a bit of a bang. I remember cycling down the Old Kent Road 10 years ago to begin my life as a teacher um, at this secondary school. I was teaching English to a group of kids who were very exuberant. Um, And I had been to this really nice primary school in the countryside and then to a secondary school that even had its own pack of beagles. Um, (laughs) And so I thought that teaching was really simple. I thought you just stood at the front of the classroom and talked about ideas like I'd seen Robin Williams do in uh, Dead Poets Society. But as you say, it wasn't like it is in the movies. The kids that I taught in Elephant and Castle faced real challenges. So about half of them were on free school meals about two-thirds of them spoke English as a second language, and they all came from these two big estates, the Haygate and the Aylesbury estate, that in the 90s were no-go zones for police after dark and have since been knocked down and redeveloped. And all of these kids arrived at school years behind where you would have hoped they might have been in their reading and their writing, and we struggled. You know, if they didn't know much about Shakespeare, I knew even less about teaching, and it was a frustrating experience. The world around us was changing really quickly. The kids had smartphones, they were sort of living in the future, spending all night playing Call of Duty. They were very tech-savvy, and I was aware that the methods I was using in my classroom might have been familiar to Socrates. (laughs) So the year these kids left school, age 16, they went on to sixth forms, this report came out, the big seminal report by the Oxford Martin School about the future of work. And it predicted that half of the jobs that they were planning on doing by the time they were 30 years old were likely to have been automated. So it seemed to pose to me these two big questions. like What is it that these kids should have been learning? And how could they learn in a way that would help them to catch up um, after coming to school behind? You actually say in your book that we're not really teaching kids how to learn. It follows on from what you've been saying and that we we sort of lack an understanding of what education is and what purpose it serves. Tell me more about what you mean by that. Yeah. So you can think about how education systems are set up. I think that at the moment they're set up to administer learning to as many kids as possible rather than to ask the question, how does an individual child learn and how can we ensure that each individual child learns as much as possible throughout their school career so this is the big difficult problem of education how do you mass produce a personalized individual education for every child and what we've done i think slightly mistakenly is to assume that our brains work a bit like computers so you have a series of inputs which is what the teacher says in the classroom. I certainly believe this as a teacher when I began. And then you get the outputs, the information sort of registers perfectly in a child's head. But what you then realise in the classroom is that actually every individual out of the 30 kids that you face has a different set of things that they know or don't know, feel or don't feel, and they're each, it's obvious, individuals. So then the question poses itself, well, okay, what are the ways 
where are some of the places that kids are learning a lot? Can I go and investigate those Mm -hmm. to find out how kids really could learn? Mm -hmm. And that set me, first of all, um, going off to Shanghai. So Shanghai in China often in the past has come top of these PISA tests. So PISA tests are these exams that are given to 15-year-olds in about 100 countries around the world every three years in order to find out which country has the smartest teenagers who know the most maths or science or language. And Shanghai often comes out on top. Those kids, their 15-year-olds know three years more science and one and a half years more maths than our 15-year-olds in the UK. So I went to have a look. What does a Shanghai classroom look like? How do kids there learn? Mm. I went to this place called Wanhangdu Road Primary School and I watched a little girl called Selina lead the whole class in a rendition of the school song before they then quickly jumped down into their seats and got on with learning. Mm. And then what I saw for 35 minutes was one of the most intensive lessons that I had ever seen in my life. The teacher was helping the kids to learn about uh, fractions and, and using number lines to express fractions. And the activities were between one and five minutes in length and she sort of ping-ponged them around the classroom doing these kind of I do activities, you do, we do. And it was intensive and they were layering it, they were trialling different approaches to mastering this concept. And they actually call this type of learning mastery learning and it's very famous um, in Shanghai. And it's basically based on an idea of drilling and repetition and the idea that that leads to understanding. Now, we used to be slightly afraid of that. Mm. But what we now know about... I was going to say, it actually sounds relatively old-fashioned, the idea of learning by rote. You know, we, it's almost like we feel like maybe we've moved on from that. But that seems to be working in Shanghai. It is working in Shanghai. And it also fits with what we now understand about the cognitive science. So although in the education of the future, we may want kids to be developing broader skills of creativity and critical thinking, mm-hmm. we know that the development of those abilities relies on us first having laid down in our brains the neural architecture, um, the memories, the long-term memories, which we then rely on, um, which allow us in the future to have sort of automaticity of thinking and action. And the way that you lay down that neural architecture is through memorization and repetition. The way we learned our times tables, for example. The way we learned our times tables, so that when you have to use... A multiplication you don't have to use space in your working memory to do it but you can just draw on that from your long-term memory and so we have this this thing from the cognitive science that there is a role still for memorization and more repetitive types of learning in laying down the foundations mm-hmm. for thought in the long run and that's what they're doing really well in Shanghai. Let's bring it back to the UK now for a minute and look at the the, the dominant education system that we have in the UK It feels like perhaps it isn't pushing to revolutionise and tailor education around how our brain actually works. Is that fair? Well, yes and no. So on the one hand, there is a drive in our education system towards use of this idea of memorisation in learning. So we have uh, Nick Gibb, the schools minister at the moment, is very excited about this approach. And we have examples of schools. So... um, one I went to for the book called King Solomon Academy, which is a school in Marlebone in London, is doing amazing things um, with a quite content-rich type of education. So it serves, again, a relatively poor London ward, um, and the students there come in, again, many years behind in their learning. But by the time they get to GCSE and A-level, they have caught up with their more affluent peers across London. And those students are going on in high numbers to great universities all over the country, and... Um, 
And those kinds of schools are pioneering these approaches which draw on that kind of science. Um, but this is only a partial view of the science. So this is really good for laying down the foundations of thought. But this type of approach won't give kids the ability to create or to think differently or to think more expansively. Before we go on to their creativity, yeah. which I really want to talk about... Let's talk for for a second about behaviour, because I think a lot of people listening to this might think, look, in Chinese schools, Chinese kids come in, they sit down, Mm. they listen to their teacher, they have uh, a relationship with authority that might be different from kids in inner city London. And there might be some good things about that, that that, that the kids in inner city London may feel a bit freer. But does is it difficult to get those kids to sit down and to actually learn, learn by rote or to actually engage? And and we we hear a lot about how um, education is difficult when classes are disrupted. That's right. It is very difficult. So I had plenty of experiences. I remember once in my own classroom, a young boy approached me in just his socks at the front of the classroom. I didn't know where he'd come from. And he said, um, can I go and get my shoes? They've dropped out of the window. Um, and these kind of things happen all the time. Um, but in somewhere like uh, King Solomon Academy, you see excellent teachers who understand how to create environments in which kids are, from any background, are willing to aspire to great things and behave in a way that is conducive to their own learning. So this comes down to great teaching. Can you create a culture within a school in which kids want to learn and are excited about learning? So the head teacher of this school is a guy called Max Heimendorf, and he started the school from scratch about 10 years ago with a brand new group of year sevens who he'd drawn from these estates all around um, the Edgware Road. And he put them through a boot camp of about a month long during the summer holiday before they arrived at the school. And they were happy to do that? They weren't happy at all. Right. No. <laughs> okay. They were miserable. I remember yeah. I spoke to one of the students there and she said it was it was crazy. They had these slogans, you had to work hard and be nice. They had to turn up at 7.30am in their summer holidays, didn't leave until 5.30pm. But he says that this was creating a bubble around them in which it became cool to try hard, cool to want to do well, um, and in which it was normal to learn a musical instrument or, you know, practice your spellings or do your multiplications tables. And so... There is a a way of of getting to that um, if you're able to really hold the line enough in creating this this ideal environment. Let's talk about tech. You speak about how children in your class were beginning to live in the future and a lot of the methods that we use traditionally feel quite outdated now. So tell us about some of these uh, tech-focused or tech-supported ideas that you've seen internationally. I think one of the things you have to understand about tech in education is that it's long promised to achieve a lot. So as far back as 100 years ago, Thomas Edison was predicting that motion pictures would enable us to achieve 100% efficiency of education and that we wouldn't need teachers anymore because kids could just learn it from movies. Now, of course, that's not come to pass. And there's a great phrase in the tech world, which is prediction is very difficult, especially when it comes to the future. So it's hard to say. However, there are some amazing examples of where tech is being used. So one that I really enjoyed visiting with this place in California called Rocket Ship Schools in San Jose. And there I met my first robot teacher. But it wasn't an Android, you know, with a human face. Instead, it was a piece of intelligent software inside an online learning environment. And so at this place, Rocket Ship, they've got something called the Learning Lab. And I went to visit this Learning Lab after I'd watched the head teacher, who was called Miss Guerrero, lead 500 primary school kids in a sing-along to Shake It Off by Taylor Swift, which she called Morning Coffee for the Kids. Um, And they were really pumped. But we went into this place and it was a cavernous room. There were 120 
five-year-olds, each wearing purple polo shirts and big outsized headphones, sitting in long rows in front of laptops. Mm -hmm. And this room was eerily silent. You, all you could hear was you know, small fingers tapping on laptop keys. And so the robot learning is actually inside the computer yes. and this is in their laptop. So the mm -hmm. robot is in the laptop. Mm -hmm. Inside the laptop is some intelligent software. So either they were using a programme called Lexile or another one called ST Maths. So they were either practising their reading and writing or practising their sums and multiplications. And what this robot teacher was doing inside their laptops was beginning to build a picture of their individual strengths and weaknesses. And then as it did so, it would then change and adapt the experience that each individual child was having. So they'd get their own tailored journey through the topics, depending on what their weaknesses were or what their strengths were. And the really eerie thing was that in this room of 120 kids, there were no trained teachers, just a pair of untrained adult supervisors. So the teachers were off elsewhere, planning further lessons, working in small groups with other kids, while the technology took care of these lessons. That's really interesting. I suppose the, the follow-on from that then is, could this technology do it all? You know, are we going to be in a situation... Like Thomas Edison said, where movies can teach us, but maybe is it, is it possible that, that computers, that robots will teach us in the future? I think that robots will take on some of the tasks of teachers, but they'll never replace humans in the classroom. And there are a couple of things to say about this. So first of all, in that same Oxford Martin report that predicted the automation of jobs, and they ranked 702 different professions from number one, least likely to be automated, which is recreational therapist, to number 702, most likely, which is telemarketer, which I would say shows that you should definitely hang up on that cold call because you can't hurt a robot's feelings. <laughs> um, and in the top 50 least likely jobs to be automated in the future are primary school teacher, you know, nursery teacher, secondary school teacher. Um, so these are very human professions are likely to persist. And I think you can also look at the tech to get a sense of that as well. So Technology is a sector that's driven overall by user-friendliness mm -hmm. and this attention economy. The ultimate thing you want to do in tech is get someone to pay attention to your device yes. and you want them to have a better and easier experience. And they're incredibly good at that, aren't they? I incredibly mean, tech companies like, like, like Google or whatever, I mean, think of just how many times you check your smartphone and, and kids are really addicted to checking their smartphones. So the technology that they have used that makes us want to check our Twitter account or see how many likes you've got on an Instagram post. If that were used to try and get kids to, I don't know, learn their French vocabulary, that could be incredibly powerful, couldn't it? It could be incredibly powerful. So there's also a, there's a guy who, uh, a Silicon Valley billionaire called Peter Diamandis, who asked this exact question. Like, can't we make learning as addictive as Angry Birds. Um, and it's a very compelling idea. But then if you begin to dig into the technology, it becomes more complicated. So, yes, these guys making the apps are incredibly good at harnessing attention. So they're really good at engaging kids in things. But then what you find is that engagement is important for learning, but it's not the whole story. Lots of the tech that gets made is focused just on that. Can I capture a kid's attention? And I do this in my classroom as well. But at the beginning of a lesson, the best thing to do to get kids to behave is to put out a word search for them to do. Kids love word searches. Now, I knew that in the five minutes they were doing their word search, they weren't really learning anything, although I'd engaged their attention really deeply. And the same kind of thing is happening with these apps. There's an amazing um, experiment called The Paradox of the Guided User. And The Paradox of the Guided User is an experiment in which they got different learners to do 
these computerized tasks, so sorting tasks, just games basically. Mm-hmm. And they did different, two different scenarios. In one scenario, you wouldn't get any help at all from your computer assistant, and you'd have to figure it out for yourself. And in the other scenario, you would get help from your computer assistant. And what they found was that when these kids had a computer assistant to kind of get them through it, they did much better in the early stages of the task. But as soon as they removed the computer assistant, the kids hadn't learned any of the strategies they needed to do the higher-order thinking, so they failed. Whereas the other kids who had never been assisted by a computer struggled at first, but then by the time they got to the higher-order levels, they had strategies that they had internalised in their brains that allowed them to solve them. So I think there's this danger that if we outsource too much of our thinking to machines and we risk not doing any of the learning ourselves, and learning seems to require some struggle, it sort of has to be difficult. You have to motivate yourself through it. And that is the opposite of this user-friendly philosophy which guides the work of Silicon Valley. Motivation is key. Now, the the thing that they work with in Silicon Valley with these apps is that they want to hit you to do the things that require very low levels of motivation to achieve. So they want to get you just at the right moment when you would be you would be at a weak moment to kind of click on your Facebook tab because the, in, the notification has come and therefore you look at your post. That's a very easy thing to do. Mm. But you can't get the kind of notification which would appear and then give you that huge well of motivation that you would need in order to struggle through some maths problems because it's just going to be hard. So I think that, yes, tech can take on some of the work of teachers, but you still need the human-to-human interaction, especially for things like motivation. We, I think a lot of us know now that different people learn in different ways. So can AI be adapted to help with that, to help with the ways, the different ways in which children learn? That's a great question. So I spoke to um, a Stanford professor called BJ Fogg, um, and he runs something called the Captology Lab there, which stands for Computers as Persuasive Technology. And by the way, all of his graduate students are the ones who have gone through his lab and are running Twitter and Instagram and making them as addictive as possible, although he thinks that computers can bring about world peace in just a few years. Let's hope so. Let's hope he's right. (laughs) But he says that what we can get are these AIs that might be able to read when our motivation for certain types of tasks is high or low. And so then it an AI might be able to read your facial expressions while you're working on something and know better than you that your motivation was suddenly at a high level in order to do a creative task or know that you're particularly ready to do some kind of memorization task. So I think that computers will be able to assist us in making those kinds of judgments. Our education systems have become rather focused around a a core set of knowledge and skills. But when we imagine the future where as we've talked about, some jobs are are replaced by automatons um, and there are new roles that are are currently unknown. Many of the children that are going through school now don't even know the kind of jobs that they're going to be doing. How on earth do we equip them for a future when we don't know what that future holds? The big watchword on this is this idea that kids need to be able to reinvent themselves throughout their careers. And I think that there's a wider point there, which is that what you need when you leave, leave school is to be good at learning. And this is regardless of whether you think the future is going to be all about racing the robots for the last remaining jobs, or it's going to be a future in which, because we've outsourced work, we get to live these lives of sort of meaning and happiness and joy, or you want to take on the big challenges that we face like climate change. Kids are going to need to be learners 
They're going to need to work well with others. They're going to need to be creative problem solvers. And they're going to need to find their, their meaning in the world. And there are some schools out there that are doing this stuff really well already. So just to say something about, about how you grow creativity, mm-hmm. you know, what they're doing in Shanghai is actually one part of what it means to become creative. So there's a famous study of creative geniuses done by the psychologist Ben Bloom. And he looks at 120 virtuosos in fields from sculpture to athletics to neuroscience to music. And he studied their life journey. And one of the things that we know, and I think we've all internalised this idea, is that becoming an expert requires those 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Like That's very famous now. And that's what they're doing in Shanghai. They're doing their 10,000 hours in those classrooms at maths and science and language. But we've forgotten another one of the lessons that came out of his study. And that was that before these creative geniuses put in those that lifetime of apprenticeship and practice at their chosen field, they enjoyed what he calls a romance stage where they fell in love with that thing and explored it and developed a passion for it. Um, And he, this is characterised by things like play and experimentation and discovery. So I think, yes, the Shanghai approach has some role in the education of the future, but we have to explore what it means to create environments in which we make this other kind of Um, creative learning possible. And do you worry that in our education system in the UK, where we are very based on on targets and exams, that there isn't enough time for creativity and play, particularly as kids get a bit older? Very worried, yes. So it's well known that over the past decade, year on year, entries in creative subjects at GCSE are down regularly. I know from my own experience that I was giving kids extra English classes and training them in exam technique and they weren't getting art lessons and music lessons or putting on plays. And that's a huge problem. So the creative industries in the UK, uh, one of our biggest sectors, worth more than £90 billion a year to the economy. Um, And it seems something that we should be investing in. Why do you think that is? I mean, is it simply that creativity is more difficult to measure, that it's harder, it it takes a long time, it's a bit messy, it's not quite as easy as, you know, ticking boxes and, of course, the dreaded league tables, you know, which, um, you know, which means that maybe it's better to spend time on maths than it is to spend time, as you say, putting on a play? No, that's right. The league tables... Um, are entirely, I think, at fault for this and the way that our exams are designed, at GCSE especially. Um, So I know that all schools, teachers, school leaders, parents, kids feel beholden to this sort of white line fever that happens age 16 when the GCSEs come around. And schools are measured on the EBAC and the EBAC doesn't include at this point any creative subject. So I think that the way that the accountability measures have been set up for schools and for kids is driving them away from these kind of creative pursuits. And one of the reasons is because it's very hard to measure something like creativity. It's easier to measure the kids recall of facts but it's i think that's a poor excuse for not including these things in mm. the classroom we should be able to have things in schools which aren't connected to particular measurement so what would you say how would you try and persuade the education system to value creativity more why is it so important well first of all i would say look if what you care about is the growth of the uk economy This is a sector that's worth £96 billion to us every year. We need to stay at the forefront of this and we need creative minds to fuel that. I would also say, okay, if you see the world going in the direction of 
universal basic income and worklessness because we've outsourced the jobs to the machines, people are going to find their meaning in pursuits in life and they need to have a creative outlet. That's where you find meaning and well-being in your life. Um, and then I would say that if you are worried about big problems that we face like globalization or mass migration or climate change and you want to think about how you're going to solve those you need to be able to think creatively you can't just follow the crowd and do what we've always done we need new ways of thinking so for that reason we also need to bring up a new generation of creative thinkers now i know for your book that you have gone around and looked at best practice all over the place tell me what you think were the most interesting environments and methods for enabling and indeed celebrating creativity that you came across? Yeah. I will go back to the point that the Shanghai example gives you some of that foundation. So creativity is split up into two things, divergent thinking and convergent thinking. Convergent thinking is where you're learning to work hard, craft your thing, do your 10,000 hours of practice. Mm -hmm. Divergent thinking is the bit that we always forget about, where you learn to imagine and create and have moments of insight. So what are the schools around the world that are doing that really well? One place I visited was called Wildflower Montessori School. Mm-hmm. It was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it was connected to the, this amazing institution called the MIT Media Lab, which has invented GPS, uh, the ink you get in Kindles, you know, touchscreens, everything was invented there. Anyway, one of the people at this lab has invented this new kind of school, which is a Montessori model. I remember getting an email from the head of the school, and she said, when you come to observe, you have to be like Jane Goodall with the chimps and basically not intervene, just sit and watch. And when I asked her, you know, why that was, she said, because in in our classrooms, we aspire for the kids to be working alone as though the teachers, us, we don't exist. This fits with another bit of evidence. So a study of creative adolescents in the US found that the teenagers who are rated in the top 5% most creative didn't come from homes with particularly creative parents or siblings, but they came from the homes with the least rules. So the fewer rules you had at home, the more likely you were to be a creative person. And this is because you're given the freedom to explore, to find a passion, to experiment, to make connections. You're not bound into a particular system. And I saw this happening at Wildflower Montessori. So it's beautiful room and in the corner was an adult ceramicist making bowls and a couple of kids were watching her there was a young boy looking down a microscope doing his own experiment being coached by a teacher there were some other couple of small um, boys sorting beads and a couple of girls running around who'd made puppets and the idea at Montessori schools is you give kids these big three-hour chunks in which they're allowed to follow their own interests and explore and we now talk about the existence of a Montessori mafia in the creative elite. So people who went to Montessori schools include Beyonce, um, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, famously, Larry Page and Sergey Brin at Google. Um, so this model really works for engendering creativity in people. And it happens because you're essentially left your own devices to explore and find out what it is that you love. It's interesting, isn't it? I can imagine a lot of people thinking, that sounds wonderful, but... They've got to get their blooming GCSEs. They're never going to get to university if they're just making bowls. How do you marry the two? Yeah, that's right. And it's a great question. So the two are being married in some countries Mm -hmm. and in some institutions. So let me talk first about um, High Tech High. High Tech High is a school in San Diego, Mm -hmm. which really does marry those two things. So they basically split kids' time in half. Half of the time, uh, the students there spend in regular English maths and science classes, um, preparing for their SATs so that they can go to good colleges in the US. The other half of their time, they spend on these big cross-disciplinary projects, which are about 
finding your identity, learning 21st century skills and pursuing big dreams and ideas. So we went into one classroom there, a single class of 15-year-old kids, 25 of them, and they had split themselves up into three groups for the duration of this project. One of the groups was experimenting with biodegradable seed pods. How do you make those? Another group was planning the production and scripting a documentary that they were going to film. How you know how you do do that? And a third group was building their own drones completely from scratch. And the project was going to end with this whole group of kids going on a five-day trek into this national park in California. They were going to fly the drones over the national park to do like an aerial survey of the degradation of plant species due to drought. They were then going to replenish the missing ones using these biodegradable seed pods. And the documentary crew was going to film the whole thing um, and put it up on YouTube to raise awareness of environmental issues. And so they were doing both um, in a single school. I mean, it, it, it sounds wonderful. And I'm sure that there are so many people who think, I wish my children had the opportunity to go to a school like that. In the UK, is it possible to restructure our education system to reflect some of the things that you've learned? It absolutely is. And I think perhaps it begins with rethinking the early years of our kids' education. So one of the things that's quite different about our school system is that kids begin to learn at a very early age, mm. going to school at four and getting into things like you know, phonics, uh, beginning to read at that, at that time. Whereas in other high-performing school systems, kids don't start formal education until later, six or seven. Um, and before that are in high-quality kindergartens or daycare centres where they have much more opportunity to play um, and to hear stories and to enjoy themselves in learning. And this, yeah. we, we, often, we often hear about Finland, and I think many people will know the example of Finland, where children don't go to school until I think they're about seven and they learn to read quite a lot later, and yet they do really well um, in reading tests at 15. What can we learn from that? The first thing to say about an example like Finland is we can't transpose practices from one country to another. Right. That's Lots of the things that happen in a country like Finland depend on the culture depend on national conversations that have taken place to value education, um, depend on an attitude that everybody has towards this stuff. So, you know, in Finland, um, for example, there are 10 applicants for every one place on primary teacher training programmes. And the training includes learning how to play the piano and learning how to ice skate. And it's, it's one of the most prestigious things that you can do there. If you ask a man or a woman what their ideal partner would do in terms of a job, they would say primary school teacher. Um, now, that's something you... It would be great if we had that in the UK, but it's very hard to know how you make the journey mm -hmm. from where we are now to that point. So something to aspire to, but it doesn't give, it doesn't give you the lesson. Um, what we can learn from Finland, I think, is that... Kids don't have to start school at age four if you want them to be able to read really well at 15, as you mentioned. In fact, some studies have been done about school starting age and kids reading. So there's a big study that was done in um, New Zealand, I believe, where they looked at kids who were starting school at four and starting school at seven, looking especially at when they began to learn to read for the first time. And they found that by age 15... There was no difference in the quality of reading between kids that had started at four and kids that had started at seven. But the kids that had started at four liked reading less mm -hmm. than the kids who started at age seven. Perhaps because it was so blooming difficult for Perhaps them when they were so four and five to learn to read, whereas <laughs> at seven they had other skills that made that easier for them. That's right. Mm. The other thing we can learn from Finland is, is the point we were talking about before, that 
it's possible to have a curriculum that both does some traditional things really well, you know, using teacher-directed activities for teaching kids to read, for teaching them some content knowledge, but also holding back time in which kids can explore many different options and, and creative pursuits. So you go into a finished school, uh, primary school, they have craft lessons and arts lessons in the same um, proportions. They have math lessons and language lessons. And it's that sort of richness of experience that kids have, which I think we could learn from if we want to develop the types of creative learners that we've been thinking about before. I want to also ask you about South Korea, because that is another very interesting educational environment. Uh, it does incredibly well on the, the PISA score, the score that we've uh, t- talked about uh, that measures how, how well children are doing, how clever they are, in it, essentially. And yet, to me, it seems like a very different kind of system. Yes. So South Korea is a system which I think stands as a lesson to all other countries of both how you can hugely improve education outcomes in your for, your, for all of your kids, but also for some of the dangers of taking a very um, extreme approach. So I went there on this Thursday morning um, in November a couple of years ago, on the day that all across the country, these hundreds of thousands of Korean school leavers were sitting down for eight hours for this gruelling exam that they call the Sunyung, which is considered one of the world's toughest exams. And the country that I saw was completely exam crazy. So that morning before the exam, police on motorbikes, had lined the roads, ready to accompany anybody that was running late to the exam hall. This is done at 18, is it? It's the equivalent of A-levels? Yeah, right, okay. So equivalent okay. of A-levels, just it's, when you're it's leaving. It's their final exactly. exam. Mm-hmm. And then in the weeks leading up to this, I had watched the newspapers run these stories for the kids, that what clothes they should wear for optimal performance, what food they should eat in the weeks leading up to it and on the day, um, even what offerings they should leave at the temple for the gods. Even more crazily, during the 45 minutes of the English listening exam that day, they grounded all flights in the country so as not to affect the kids' concentration. Um, And it was this kind of attention to detail which seemed to matter. So I was there to follow this uh, lovely young man called Seung Bin Lee, who was taking his exam that day. And he, his attention to detail was so strong that he told me during the exam he'd been worried about overheating. And so he had gone to the bathroom and removed his underpants so that he could cool down. And I didn't ask him what he did with them afterwards, although I wish I had done that. Um, but it was this idea that success was in these minute details. It was all about marginal gains. Yeah. He said in the exam, it was better not to think. You had to get into this zone and become a sort of instrument of exam-taking technique. And it's really crazy, but... They worked incredibly hard, haven't they? I mean, the the number of hours that these children put in are, are extraordinary. I'm not sure that we could or even should replicate that here. No, so the former education minister told me that, look, Korea has no natural resources. We just have our minds and our hard work. But this hard work is going to really extreme levels. So Sung Bin showed me his revision calendar after the exam. And for three years leading up to the exam, he'd worked 15 hours a day, five days a week, first at school, then in the evening at these hagwons, these private tutoring centres. So this is at 15, at 16, at 17. Throughout his whole teenage years, he's Mm -hmm. been working and not just five days a week, but 12 hours a day on Saturday and Sunday. And he told me that to relax once a month, he would watch a DVD. That was sort of how he let off steam as a teenager. You know, this is taking a really heavy toll on Korea. I would love to get onto that in a minute. I just wanted to ask you first. So these kids are working extraordinarily hard. They're coming top of these league tables, this table of the cleverest, the the, the best educated children in the world. 
What about their creativity? Because if you're working 12, 14, 15 hours a day and watching one DVD a month, how much do you know about the outside world? Where's your emotional intelligence? Right, that's why we should um, be cautious about the way that our system in the UK is heading with all of the exams that we're we're getting obsessed with. Um, And that's because in Korea, as you would expect, parents, teachers... Policymakers, everybody um, is now recognising that they've got a big problem with their education system. The idea is that it was sort of quite a good education system for maybe 20 years ago, right. when what you needed was lots of people who could go and do pretty regular office-type jobs where someone would give you your work at the beginning of the week, tell you exactly what to do, and you would do it. Now, those kinds of roles are fast disappearing. They're being replaced by robots. They're being automated. South Korea already has the highest proportion of robots to workers of any country in the world. And it's hard not to think that they've basically had a school system that's been bringing up robots, which has made it really easy for them to automate the kinds of careers they have there. So it is a big problem, yeah. Let's talk about well-being, because uh, to me, the thought of children in those formative years, 14, 15, 16, 17, spending all day, every day studying and having that kind of pressure on them, I mean, 15-hour days, what on earth does that do to their mental health? Well, South Korea is in the grip of a mental health crisis. It has the highest teen suicide rate of any country in the world, and it's not surprising. I even spoke to adults, fully grown adults who are now successful people, who, when talking about their school days in South Korea, would cry recalling the stress that they experienced. And when I asked Seung Bin what strategies he had to deal with this stress, he thought thought for a while and then he told me, I know it sounds strange, but I just have to work even harder. So this is not a system that we should aspire towards, Mm, I think, in that way. Exactly. It's easy to think, oh, they come at the top of this pizza table. We should aspire to be like them. And actually, when you dig down a little bit, maybe that's not what we should be looking for at all. No, that's right. I mean, we shouldn't completely discount the example of Korea because it was the scene of this education miracle, Mm. a country that went in 70 years from having four in five people illiterate to being the country with the highest proportion of university graduates um, to population of any country in the world. But when it comes to something like well-being, we absolutely mustn't look to their example. Rather, I would look again at somewhere like Finland and and, and what they do around well-being. So Finland comes top of the UN's happiness index, according to a survey that took place this year. It's also makes more of its people than any country in the world. So the World Economic Forum has a human capital index. Finland comes top. It's slightly dropping down the PISA tables. um, But kids there have strong social capital. They feel... I remember going into this classroom of a teacher called Pekka Peora, and he is Finland's most famous teacher. And he had set up his class in small groups of four, he did this cool thing at the beginning of his lesson. He put up a question on the interactive whiteboard and then asked kids to beam in answers to this question using their smartphones and then displayed their answers in a bar chart on the board. And then he didn't tell them the answer, but got them to turn and talk to each other. So what answer had the other kids around the table given? Why had they given that answer? And then they beamed in another answer and the bar chart had shifted dramatically. The kids had taught each other how to um, do this problem. And his whole point about teaching was that he saw his role as being that of giving kids the skills and attitudes, the emotional intelligence, as well as the intelligence that they need to learn things for themselves. And he'd studied all sorts of psychology texts, and he was drawing all of these lessons into his classroom. And what he would do, he would give all of the materials to the kids at the beginning of the year, 
and then he would just coach them on their emotional intelligence. How well were they doing at persevering? How well were they doing at cooperating? How well were they doing at imagination? Um, And give them feedback on that and get the kids to think about it a lot. Um, And at the end of the year, he even got the kids to choose their own school grades. And he said that his approach depended on this idea of deleting the concept of competition from education entirely. You know, I asked him, what happens when kids fall behind in this approach? And he sort of looked at me like, what do you mean behind what is behind what we have to do is to delete that idea from education allow kids to have an environment in which they can fail safely over and over and over again that's how you best learn and so that told me something about an environment that is conducive to growing well-being and emotional intelligence where you feel safe to take risks and to fail and yes of course we have to have a system, or do we? I'm asking you this question, really, rather than answering it myself, um, where you end up with some kind of qualification at the end to get to the next stage. That's right. And so it's trying to marry those two things, isn't That's it? That's right. Yeah, and the other thing that you have to say about Finland before I talk about the UK is that those kids are being assessed on a very regular basis but they're not being assessed in high-stakes national assessments. They're being assessed by the teachers in their classrooms. Those teachers are assessing the kids regularly. It's not a zero-assessment country. It's a zero-high-stakes national assessment country. But in terms of our system, yes. I'd like to come on to to talk about our system, actually. In this book, you've drawn together some of the very best thoughts from around the world and indeed pointed out some of the, the pitfalls and the dangers. So I'd like to look at how we make use of all of these best ideas and experiences from across the world to revolutionise our school system. So I have a manifesto at the end of my book, and I'll talk about some of the ideas at that. So in my manifesto, it begins with this idea that we need to embrace the principle of lifelong learning. We should be setting up our kids and our adults, so that they're able to continue throughout their lives to learn things for themselves, whether that's a new job um, or taking on a new skill that they want to develop. And that begins with ensuring that when they're at school, they learn to love learning and they don't lose that love um, throughout their lives, which means, I think, bringing in more play and creativity to the experience, but also ensuring that kids make progress. Because if you don't make progress, you don't feel like there's any point in learning. So there's that. Secondly, I think we need to embrace this area of early childhood development so all of the gaps that appear in kids learning appear very early in their lives yeah you you talked a little bit at, uh, in the book something that i find very interesting was this this uh, heckman curve mm. and it sort of debunks the idea that that nursery isn't that important to children's education tell me a little bit more about that yeah that's right so um james heckman is a very famous um economist in education and he sort of studied the return on investment of giving of investing money at different stages of a child's life he's shown by looking at the education systems around the world that the earlier you spend money on a child's education the better the return you get on that in terms of how well that child does in the long term and the study that really brings this to life for me is that it was done by these researchers called Hart and Risley in Kansas in the 80s and they looked at how many words different kids had heard whether they came from a poor background or a richer background and they found something absolutely stunning but that by age four sort of starting school age kids from the poorest homes had heard 30 million less words fewer words sorry than um, kids from more affluent backgrounds and 
That was then translating into this big language gap when the kids arrived at school, a vocabulary gap, and that then is exacerbated um, by the school experience because as you arrive, the teachers see one kid as being a high performer and the other as being a low performer, and then you're sort of stuck with that label forever. Many of us do understand, I think, that idea that uh, it's so important where you come from because, you know, parents read with their children and it's not necessarily about your, your income, but about the amount of time that you have, the resources that you have to look after some, your, your children. It's interesting that you say that money can help this because, of course, I think most of us would like to see a more level playing field and would like to see children who come from more disadvantaged backgrounds not then being disadvantaged in perpetuity because of those few years. What can we do and and can money help solve this problem of a a four-year-old who has heard so many fewer words, um, who doesn't have anyone to read to them, who perhaps has weak language skills themselves? Yeah, absolutely. It can, it can. And I think, first of all, I think we have to accept that every parent fundamentally wants the best for their kids and will do everything in their power to give their own children an advantage. I think that's sort of a fundamental truth of human experience. Um, But we can do things to slightly level the playing field. At the early childhood level, we should invest money in fantastic early childhood centres. Now, there are fantastic early childhood centres out there. One I visited for the book, a place called Penn Green in Corby in Northamptonshire. Um, So there what they do as soon as... um, Corby has one of the lowest levels of education of any town in the UK. And that's why they started this early childhood centre in this place. Mm -hmm. And they work with mothers, even just young women, before they fall pregnant. And then once they do fall pregnant, work with them throughout the pregnancy, throughout the early years of their kid's life. And then what they're working on is training those parents in supporting their kids. That's interesting because, you know, you talk about, which of course is a, a universal truth that everyone wants the best for their children. But it's also true that very often people don't know how to give them the best, perhaps because they haven't had an education themselves or they just don't have the resources to be able to provide their children with what they need. That's exactly right. Imagine that you have had a negative school experience Mm. where you have felt like a failure. You haven't, your love of learning has not been cultivated. You don't pursue reading and you don't really understand what school is for. You had a bad, and then you have a child. You're not going to be able to give that child the types of capital that they would need to succeed in that space. And that's what Penguin does. It trains young mothers um, up and it invites them into this learning community to support them with their child throughout the first years of that child's life. And amazingly, the centre is now also a, a globally recognised research centre. And all of the researchers in there are mothers of kids uh, that went through Penn Green, and they've been sort of educated and supported into graduate and postgraduate education. So one thing that we could be doing is there's a, there is a finite amount of money that we can spend on education. Um, we'll talk in a minute about whether and what size that pot should be, but we should put more into those early years learning. That's right. Um, another thing I, I wonder about is the, the respect towards the, the teaching profession that we have in this country. You mentioned earlier on about uh, the way that teachers are regarded in Finland. Um, we have a problem in this country attracting the brightest and the best into the teaching profession and, and retaining teachers once they get there. What can we do about that? Yeah, this is, I think, the most important point in my manifesto, that we need to re frame and reimagine the role of teachers within our society. At the moment, it's very hard to make the case that teachers should be paid more money. Um, 
So we have to find other ways of elevating their status. And this is really important. So I think that we could imagine, reimagine the role of teaching for the 21st century. So we could picture teachers as people that become deep experts in the neuroscience of learning. So you're a neuroscientist. Uh, you are also an expert in the latest tech. You know how to outsource bits of your classroom practice to an AI assistant or to use a computer to to do the assessment of your kids' work. You're also still pursuing deep knowledge in your subject area, becoming an expert in that. You become a group psychologist um, or coach for the students in your classroom. So I think that if we could reimagine that teacher identity and role and then create the space and time and give the support and respect to teachers that they require then to become experts in those different areas. You could picture a new image of what a teacher might be. Like For me, teaching is the ultimate profession of the 21st century. So we live in a world in which every resource is running out. We're running out of land, we're running out of fuel and energy. The one thing that is unlimited is our human imagination. Like That's the last resource that we can cultivate and teachers are the people that cultivate that resource. So that, and in order to achieve it, I think we need to reimagine how we would train teachers. So I went to a place, an amazing place in uh, the US called the Relay Graduate School of Education, and they imagine a 10-year training journey for teachers, like doctors. You spend the first three years in a sort of practical apprenticeship where you're learning the craft of the profession in the classroom, and someone's probably telling you exactly what to do. You should ask a question in this way. This is how you get kids to pay attention, and it's really focused on the craft. Then you spend a year, another three years becoming an expert in these different bits, so in data analytics, in your subject area, in behaviour management. You master your craft. And then in the final three years, you get deep into a specialism. You become a tech expert. You become a neuroscience expert. You become some kind of expert. And I like this. It's, it's putting teachers on the same pedestal that we put doctors on. Now, obviously, this needs funding. Education is perhaps one investment on which a return is is guaranteed. Uh, you've talked in your book about how China is on course to become uh, the first education superpower. The amount of money that's put into the education system in the UK is considerably lower than that. Obviously, the amount of money that we have in the pot in our state is limited. Can you make a case for why we should have a lot more funding in education? Education is the investment that always pays off. My favourite example of this is in 1957, when the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik satellite into space and it started orbiting the Earth. The US administration freaked out. You know, President Eisenhower thought that the Russians were getting ahead of the US in terms of technological development. And so he then launched a big act, and it was called the National Defence and Education Act. He recognised at that moment that they needed to invest in technology, but they also needed to invest in the minds of the future that would create the technology that would enable the US to rediscover its technological supremacy. And they created this bunch of science and technology high schools all across the US throughout the 60s and 70s. And the kids that went to those schools were Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, the people that founded Silicon Valley. They built this amazing thing. And now we've forgotten that lesson. What we do in the West is we import 
talent from all over the world to run our tech industries, to run our creative industries. And, you know, the way we're heading at the moment, that's not going to be possible forever. And what you see a country like China doing is taking the Sputnik lesson and applying it to the modern world. They experience a technological inferiority to the the US at the moment. And have recognised that if they want to win this AI arms race which is going on, then they're going to need to invest in amazing science and technology education for their kids so that in 10, 20 years' time, they have the brightest and ablest human minds to create the bits of AI of the future. And if the Chinese are doing it with their one billion people and this huge infrastructure that they have, then I think we all ought to be paying close attention and recognising that if we're going to keep up in the 21st century, that's what we have to invest in as well. They have an amazing phrase in China, which is that if your plan is for one year, you should plant rice. If your plan is for 10 years, you should plant trees. And if your plan is for 100 years, you should educate children. And that's what they're doing and what we should be doing as well here. I wonder if it is a little bit more difficult to make that case uh, to government in this country because of our private school system because so many of the influencers have been through a private school system that is quite different from the state school system and therefore maybe they don't understand exactly what's going on in comprehensive schools. Do you see that, do you, do you first of all see that uh, quite a difference between the private school sector and, and the state school sector uh, and do you agree that that might be one of the reasons why we're not as willing to, uh, to invest in our state sector? I think it comes down to the values that underpin the system. Mm -hmm. I think our values in the UK that characterise the education system as it is are one of a race to the top. I think that we, we accept a society that's stratified according to class, in which an elite is able to sort of govern on behalf of all, run the companies, run the media, uh, do all that good stuff. And that's how we're set up. And our education system is set up to replicate that. Mm. Now, whether you agree or don't agree with it, the education system, as we have it, is very good at replicating that system. The children of the elite are able to go to these elite institutions for school, these private schools, which do give them a fantastic education. And do you think that actually what's happening in private schools and that the way that they are being taught is is much better? I mean, people are shelling out an awful lot of money to do it. Is it worth it in terms of the education that they're getting? Have you looked at it and seen that there are quite a lot of differences between a comprehensive school education and some of the, the best uh, public school educations or private school educations? There are big differences. Right. Um, so... I spent some time at Eton College for the research for the book and there I was blown away by how amazing that institution was. First of all, in the classes, um, they're like seminars that you might have at university. In those places, the teacher really does just talk about ideas and the kids join in because they already have, by the age of 13, the intellectual tools that they need to get on in that kind of environment. I also remember being amazed at the amount of freedom those kids are given to go and pursue their own interests and find what it is that they love to put on a play or to run a sports team or to create a society where they're inviting you know business people in to talk to them um, or eminent people in their fields to come and have dinner with them and it was an incredible an incredible educational environment and when I think about you know, it's not just the buildings that are different, like these incredible, you know, many hundred year old buildings that surround the kids. This sense that, you know, 19 prime ministers have come from this school, which gives you this amazing aspirational boost. So what can we learn sort of for our comprehensive schools from that? 
Well, first of all, there's a difficulty with comprehensive schools because you're not able to select the brightest kids. So you have to, you're going to be working with the kids that come to your door. So you already have a difference of educational mission there. You are trying to help kids to catch up to the average, which then makes it more difficult to sort of pursue these higher um, level skills and, and think these things you would love to do. You're also working in classes where you have a huge diversity of like learning needs and experiences you have a bit less money to invest in things like nice theatres or, or, or um, sports facilities and things so it's very hard to replicate some elements of the model but I think we can try to recognise the high aspirations and the sort of um, intellectual rigour that is present in some of the best private schools um, I think we can look at this idea that you get to explore many different fields of study and things that you might enjoy to find out what your passion is I think we could also borrow that but then when it comes down to the teaching what you actually find in terms of value add is that on average private schools are no better than state schools in fact state schools are better than private schools are adding value as measured by GCSE attainment mm -hmm. so kids make more progress in the average state school from 11 to 16 than they do in the average private school. So there's an argument to say that actually the better teachers on average are in comprehensive state schools. And the reason that many private schools do well is because they're able to select already high-performing kids and then sort of give them a bit of polish at the end. Alex, it's absolutely fascinating. I hope that your manifesto gains traction and uh, that we see uh, some of those ideas replicated in our education system. Thank you very much indeed, Alex. Thanks very much. I hope so too. Thank you. The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.